I'll ask you to turn with me, please, to the book of Colossians. Colossians, and we will be considering today verse 1 up to verse 14. Colossians 1, 1 to 14. Now, before um, we dive in, as part of our church's commitment to be a base camp for believers and a lighthouse for the lost, our missions committee has been working to refine our philosophy of missions. And one of the aspects of that philosophy is that we want to build meaningful relationships with our missionaries, and we want to participate actively in the work of spreading the gospel around the world. So this summer, three of our elders have the opportunity of leading our church in implementing that philosophy. Matt Durkee, who is in Mexico right now, and his family will be going to Vanuatu in the middle of June in order to encourage a missionary family and help them implement their projects. And then in July, Pastor Sam and I will be going to Jamaica. Yeah. <laughs> We will be participating in the Caribbean Baptist Pastors Conference. So don't envy us. We are going to be wearing suits and ties in the middle in July. I don't have the rhythm. I'll bring back coffee. <laughs> but um, Pastor Sam and I will be uh, Pastor Sam will be talking about mentoring young pastors. And I'll be talking about the supremacy of Christ in culture, in the church, and in personal life as the keynote speaker. So we would ask you to pray for us and to partner with us in this gospel ministry by helping to pay for our flights. We are your representatives as we minister in Vanuatu and in Jamaica. Now, the trip to Jamaica is going to cost about $700, but the trip to J Vanuatu will cost about 15000 because there's four of them going. Now, if you'd like to help, uh, don't bother to segregate Vanuatu or Jamaica. Just, say, just indicate that your gift is for mission trips, and we will allocate them accordingly. Matt and I have talked about it. We will share, as brothers should. Now, we will be receiving these gifts from now up to May 16. And so we encourage you to prayerfully consider how you can participate in these efforts by your giving. All right, now to the text. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. Now, even as I look forward to speaking at that pastor's conference in Jamaica, I'm humbled and haunted by a question that came in recently um, in the Hey RJ box. We're doing the Q&A next week, but I'm answering this question now. Someone asked, how do you know that you are meeting the needs of the congregation? And I'm especially grateful that it came in the Hey RJ box so I could think about it. And I realized, realistically, I, I would be extremely arrogant to say, I know I'm meeting the needs of the congregation. Because the fact of the matter is, I cannot meet the needs of the congregation. And thankfully, before you fire me, I don't have to. <laughs> My task, along with the elders, 
is to lead the church in obeying God's purposes by giving you God's word. I don't meet your needs. The elders don't meet your needs. Christ meets our needs. That's why we sang, all I have is Christ. Our job as elders is to point you to Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in the book of Colossians. The believers in Colossae were confronting false teachings that promised some form of fullness and spiritual growth, but apart from Jesus Christ. So Paul calls them to faithfulness by showing them the supremacy of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So let's read Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." Now, Paul, in this passage, is following the standard letter-writing protocol of his day with his greeting, verse 1 to verse 2, and then a report of his thanksgiving, verse 3 to verse 8, and then in his prayer for the Colossian believers, verse 9 to verse 14. That standard writing protocol, but at the same time, he is using these elements to begin to address the issues that the church is facing. So he deliberately introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, in order to emphasize his God-given authority to address a congregation that he had not previously met. See, the church had been planted by Epaphras, who appears in verse 7. He was probably a native of Colossae who was working with Paul. That's why Paul refers to him as our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ 
on our behalf. And it is quite possible that Epaphras would have been converted through the ministry of Paul in Ephesus um, in the 18-month or three-year period that he was ministering in Ephesus. Now, even if they didn't know Paul personally, Paul wants them to understand that they are still bound together as family. That's why he calls them the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. They have a family bond because God had set them apart for himself. That's why he refers to them as God's holy people in Colossae. That's what holy means, to be set apart for God to serve his purposes. And he's not just establishing a connection with them. He's actually reminding them of their real identity. As Douglas Moo would point out, to be in Christ is to belong to him as the originator and ruler of the new age of redemption that is death and resurrection inaugurated. In Christ is Paul's way of saying that believers are now located in a new place, the kingdom of God's Son. That carries with it a total reorientation of one's existence. So they were in Colossae, but in a very real sense, they were in Christ. And that defined their conduct in Colossae. And by the same token, it's the wonderful status you and I enjoy along with the Colossian believers, because we are also united with Christ through faith. And our union with Christ then means that we have the joy of belonging to God to serve His purposes. And that's why Paul greets them with grace and peace to you from God our Father. This is not simply a wish. This is a declaration of what we already enjoy we have peace because we have been reconciled to God. And it's not something we earned. It is a gift of God's grace. And Paul is reminding them and us of, the, of our identity in Christ because he's encouraging the Colossian believers to continue to be faithful to Christ by refusing to be swayed by aberrant teaching. Moreover, Paul wants them to understand that their status as members of God's family belonging to him, is the result of their belief in the gospel that Epaphras proclaimed to them. If you look at verse 3 to verse 5, that's why Paul moves on to thank God for the evidences of God's gracious work in their lives. It is a gracious work described in terms of faith, hope, and love. In verse 4, he says, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, they have put their trust in Jesus, the Messiah. And their faith isn't simply intellectual. It's active because they demonstrated the genuineness of their faith in love. That's why he moves on. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. And that faith working through love it's the fruit of their hope in the promises of the gospel. Look at verse 5. The faith and love that spring up from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. 
and these evidences of God's grace in their lives then demonstrates that the gospel they heard from Epaphras is true. Because remember, Epaphras was not an apostle. He had heard the gospel from Paul and he passed it on to the Colossians. And perhaps in the mind of the Colossian believers, well, maybe Epaphras didn't know enough. Maybe there's something lacking. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. What you heard from Epaphras is absolutely true. He hasn't held out on you. In fact, Paul personifies the gospel as the true message that came to you or that has come to you. And he emphasizes that it is the same gospel that has been powerfully transforming people throughout the world. Look at verse 6. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel that transformed them is the same gospel that's transforming people around the world. And the ultimate proof of that gospel transformation is in verse 8. Their love for one another and for other believers that is enabled by the Holy Spirit. That's why he says, it's your love in the Spirit. And we understand this love is more than a feeling. It is not less than a feeling, but it's more than a feeling. I like Mu's description. This love is a force within that seeks release by giving itself to others, not a vacuum that selfishly craves to be filled with what others can give to us. True disciples of Christ, inspired by love, intend every action to bring benefits to others. And it's a love in the Spirit because only the Spirit could produce such self-giving love. And at the heart of Paul's statements is he wants to reassure the, the Colossian believers that what Epaphras had taught them was accurate and complete. He's trying to help the Colossian church realize they don't need anything that the false teachings were promising. They already have the good news of Jesus Christ, and that is all they need. And by the same token, brothers and sisters, Christ is all we need. The gospel is the center of everything we do because really, that's all we need. But receiving the truth of the gospel doesn't mean you can relax. Hope, after all, is not complacent. If anything, the hope of the gospel ought to spur us to renewed effort. And that's why Paul, in verse 9 to verse 14, tells the Colossian believers how he prays for them on a continuous basis. And the content of his prayer is meant to demonstrate what he understands to be most critical for the Colossian believers. And by extension, Paul's prayer tells us then what we need most. Verse 9 that we, that God fill us with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. That's our most critical need. To know God's will, to be filled by the Spirit so that we know God's will. D.A. Carson would comment, knowledge of God's will 
is more than knowledge of a certain corpus of doctrine, though it cannot easily be less. His prayer is motivated in part by his concern over their flirtation with the syncretism and pluralism of their own day. These dangerous tendencies end up reducing Christ to merely relative importance, and Paul will not have it. Paul prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of the will of God, a knowledge that consists of wisdom and understanding of all kinds at the spiritual level. How else will they withstand the pressures of their surrounding pagan culture, pressures that are subtle as they are endemic? And I think we resonate with this, don't we? We face that same pressure that the Colossian believers face, the pressure to conform, the pressure to align. How else would they think Christianly and genuinely bring their minds and hearts and conduct into conformity with God's will? And Paul is deliberately countering the allure of false teachings that promised fullness by emphasizing that full knowledge comes from God through his gospel, not through human tradition or through ascetic practices. Now, let me just make a caveat here. We often associated no, associate knowing God's will with life decisions, right? Who do I marry? What job do I take? Whatever. Let's understand that the knowledge of God's will is actually far broader. For Paul, understanding God's will involves recognizing how Christ is the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes, how God's salvation is open to all people, and how God intends for Christians to live in whatever situation they find themselves. Now, this knowledge is more than intellectual understanding, though it is not less than intellectual understanding. The language Paul uses here of knowing God's will and being filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, or spiritual wisdom and understanding by the Spirit is drawn from the Old Testament notion of wisdom. Wisdom being defined as the art of skillful, godly living. And um, in the fall, just to let you know, we'll have Dave Barker coming um, in October to talk about the wisdom literature. So he's going to do one sermon on Proverbs, one sermon on Job, one sermon on Song of Songs. That's going to be fun. And one sermon on the book of Ecclesiastes. All because we need to learn wisdom. Understood as the art of skillful, godly living. Because we recognize that truth, properly understood, must be lived out in relationship with God. And that's why you see in verse 10... Paul wants the believers to know God's will by being filled by the Spirit, but it's not so that they can sit down and parse out the immutability of Christ. Notice verse 10. The goal in verse 10 is so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. That's the bottom line. We must know God's will so that we may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. And the goal of living a life worthy of the Lord 
orients us to Jesus as the focus of our lives. That's what Doug Moo was talking about when he talked about a total reorientation of existence. We recognize that we have been set apart to God as members of his forever family. We are the objects of his reconciling grace. And as members of his family, as his children, then we have a responsibility to live up to that status. I remember growing up, my parents moved to an island in the Philippines where my grandmother was, my grandmother's family was one of the original settlers. So my last name was very well known. And my, my, I remember my grandmother reminding me, you are a numandap, which was to say, if you cause any trouble, <laughs> I'm seven years old. <laughs> if you cause any trouble, Word will get back to me. <laughs> Please behave in such a way as to bring honor to my family. <laughs> and, you know, good thing we only stayed there for two years. <laughs> but in the case of our Savior, in the case of this text, because we are the children of God, we have the responsibility and privilege of glorifying God by demonstrating the transforming power of the gospel. And it's not a matter of grudging obedience. Notice, we live up to our calling or we, we live a life worthy of the Lord because we want to please Him in every way. It's a calling to live for the pleasure of God because we delight in this God. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism would put it, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or if you follow John Piper, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. See, it reminds us that our lives are a mess because we put ourselves in God's place and live for ourselves. Worse, because we have taken what rightly belongs to God, we are under God's righteous judgment. But God has acted to bring grace and peace because instead of condemning us, Jesus came for us. Jesus died and rose again so that we may be forgiven and be reconciled to God. And integral to that reconciliation is being restored to fulfilling the purposes for which God made us. Living to please God, then, is an all-encompassing goal. Notice, Paul says that we are to please God in every way. And that living to please God demonstrates how we have been made right with God that God is at peace with us and we have stopped rebelling against God to submit to his loving rule. And Paul doesn't leave this in the vacuum. He spells out how we please Christ using four participles. If you don't know what a participle is, look at the ings, the, the, those words that end with ing. So you, you will see bearing fruit growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened, 
to have endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks. Those are the four ways we please God. So first, we please God by bearing fruit in every good work. Notice, we are not saved by our works. Rather, we are saved for good works. Bearing fruit in every good work actually refers back to verse 6. You notice there's that same language of the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world. world. That's an allusion to Genesis 1.28, where God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, bear fruit and grow. And it, it, it's meant to signify that we are new creation. And as new creation in Christ, we fulfill the mandate that Adam failed to fulfill. So that our pleasing God is us acting as God's vice regents who reflect his character in everything we do. And it's not something that we will ourselves into doing. It's not something that we accomplish solely by our effort. The good that we do is the result of God molding our characters to be conformed to Jesus. And that's why Paul uses the image of fruit, bearing fruit. Our good works are the result of God working in our lives as the Spirit applies the gospel to us. And so we please God with our lives out of a living, vital relationship with Him that transforms us into His image. And that's why Paul goes on to say that we please God by growing in the knowledge of God. We need to know who God is and what He has done for us through His Son. See, the Christian life is fundamentally relational. It's not rules. It's relationship. God has brought us into covenant relationship with Him. And we have the privilege of being in fellowship with the triune God who made us so that we may enjoy the beauty of God. And this knowing God to which Paul calls us is for our flourishing. Because we are given the privilege of knowing a God who is so infinitely wonderful that the more you know Him, the more you want to know Him. And that pleasing God is about growing in the relationship with Him. And in that relationship, we learn to think God's thoughts after Him. It's not something that happens mystically. It happens through the Word of God as the Spirit applies His truth to us. That's why we read Psalm 19 at the beginning of the service. This is not some airy-fairy, I know God, no, we know God through His Word as He reveals Himself to us, as His Spirit applies His truth to us, so that the Word of God forms us to respond biblically to every situation. So that as one scholar would say, understanding will fuel holiness, and holiness will fuel understanding. And that means knowing cannot be separated from obedience. So, biblical truth is like math. 
Now, those of you who don't like math, please don't tune out. <laughs> you don't really understand a math concept until you practice it. And that's, that's the same with biblical truth. Your understanding of truth deepens as you put it into practice. But when I know what's right and I don't do it, then I become this kind of person. I become a person of low information to action ratio. You get the point there? And that's why God is constantly at work in us. Truth needs to transform more than our behavior. Truth needs to transform character. Because what the Spirit is doing is He is transforming our desires as we grow in our relationship with Him through His Word. We're not just brains and vats. If that were the case, then doing right would simply be logical, right? I mean, it is logical. But it's hard, isn't it? I know what's right, but I still do wrong. Because there's more than just uh, logic and reason involved. It's a question of our affections, our wills. And that's why I appreciated the way um, Hal prayed earlier. Recognizing, thanking God that he didn't give he, he didn't give us what we desire because we recognize that our desires are distorted. And that's why it's so hard to do what's right. The work of the Spirit then is to change our desires as we learn the truth. Our affections are being renewed by the Spirit through His Word. So that our transformed desires then result in conduct that is shaped by Scripture. Because trying to do good without knowing God's Word is like driving with your eyes closed. Please don't try that. On the other hand, knowing truth without practicing is like sitting in the car without turning on the engine. And trying to be good apart from the Spirit, well, that's just like trying to drive without gas in your car. You still ain't going nowhere. And that's why Paul says that we please God by being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Paul recognizes living to please God is not sustainable on our own. It is beyond our ability. Because following Jesus is too hard and we are way too easily distracted. We are, living, we are called to live for God in the midst of a world that is cursed by sin and that is opposed to God. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we are going against the flow. Faithfulness to Christ is radical. It is countercultural. And as we saw in Mark's gospel, to follow Jesus is to deny ourselves, take up our cross, to follow our servant king, who gave himself for us. We are following in the footsteps of Jesus, whose life fully pleased the Father, and whose life led him to die the most shameful, agonizing death possible. Somebody in the congregation likes to say, growing old is not for wimps. 
Well, I'm tempted to say Christianity is not for wimps, but, well, I am. (laughs) But praise God, we don't do it on our own. That's why Paul says, being strengthened with God's glorious might. See, the reason why we can embark on this journey in the first place is that God has saved us. And the reason we can endure is that God strengthens us with his glorious might. Just think of it. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that God provides to us so that we may stay faithful in the midst of all the pain, all the hardship, all the sacrifice that following Jesus would bring. And that's why God is pleased. God is pleased because his power at work in us is bearing fruit. It is enabling us to follow him. God is pleased because our long-term endurance demonstrates not just his, the, the fruit of his work in us, it also demonstrates our confidence in him. It is a way for us to demonstrate how much we love him. And it's a love that grows as we experience his sustaining grace day after day after day. And as we bear hardship for his sake, then we are testifying that Jesus is worth the pain. And we are testifying that Jesus is worth more than anything and everything we could ever lose. And as we experience his sustaining grace, we are drawn to him. Um, Those of you who like Lord of the Rings, you remember when Frodo and Sam were... were, were heading for Mount Doom, for the cracks of doom, and they had no other food except the lembas, the wafers that the, the elves gave them. And J.R.R. Tolkien said, lembas had a special property that the more you relied on the lembas, the more it fortified you, the more it strengthened you. And it's the same thing in our relationship with Christ. The more we are stripped of the things we rely on, to rely on Christ, the more Christ becomes precious to us and the more we experience his sustaining grace and the more we are drawn to him. And God is pleased because then our reliance on him strengthens our bond with him. And God is pleased to give us this promise. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We love that, right? Notice the if part. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. See, that's the awesome thing about what God is doing. He strengthens us to endure suffering for his sake because his intention is that Christ may share his glory with us. And that's why we please God by joyful thanksgiving. Giving thanks is the proper response to God's grace in our lives. And we're not simply talking about an emotional response, although thanksgiving fully engages our emotions. In fact, it should engage our whole, bo- whole person. C.S. 
See, thanking God is an act of remembering and acknowledgement that calls us to God's centeredness. To thank God is to acknowledge His radical grace towards us. It's a humble acknowledgement. I don't deserve the goodness of God towards me. And it's also a humble acknowledgement that I am utterly, absolutely dependent on Him, whether I like it or not. And as we acknowledge our dependence on Him, we are then led to acknowledge His authority, His right to rule over us. And as we give thanks, recognizing his right to rule over us, then we submit to him. Not because we're afraid of him, but because we recognize that this God, whom we thank, is a God of grace who has given us far more and far better than I deserve. And that's why Paul, in verse 12 to verse 14, highlights the grace of God. He talks about the second exodus that God had accomplished in their lives and in ours. Verse 12, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Imagine that. It reminds us that we are rebels deserving only of God's judgment. And yet... God has rescued us from our bondage to sin and Satan, transferring us from the kingdom of darkness and all that that imagery implies by giving us his beloved son as our sacrifice and substitute. That's the price of our redemption. So that through the self-giving of Jesus on the cross, our sins are forgiven and we are made joint heirs with him. Can you imagine? Once your enemy, as we sang earlier, now seated at your table. And that's why we go on, Jesus, thank you. And having rescued us from our bondage to sin, he has brought us under the lordship of Jesus. Notice what it says. He has brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And that authority of Jesus is a loving rule that frees us to be what God intended us to be in the first place. This is what true freedom looks like. It is being bound to Jesus. It is being under his rule so that we may be a people who live for his pleasure and his glory. See, this is why we please him. Because he has done the most amazing thing that we never even deserved or even wanted. And that's why we live For his glory. He hasn't just given us blessings. Do you realize that he has given us nothing less than himself? And he calls us to live for his pleasure so that we may be able to enjoy him even more. That's the wonder of God's grace. So, my prayer for us 
as we study the book of Colossians, is that our lives would become more and more unceasing expressions of gratitude to God for his wonderful grace towards us so that he would be glorified. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let us pray. Father, thank you. It is an astounding thought to realize that the infinite, eternal creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who sustains the universe by his powerful word, would actually take thought of people like us. And instead of thinking of how you would condemn us and punish us for all eternity because of the wrongs we have done. Father, you, you, you thought to show your love to us. To choose to love us. And to love us to such a degree that the second person of the triune God became a fully human being with the express purpose of living a life that fully pleased the Father so that he may be our perfect sacrifice and substitute so that our sins would be forgiven, your wrath may be appeased, and we would be reconciled to you. And we thank you that Christ rose again for our sakes so that we would be declared righteous in your sight in union with him through faith. And it's now exalted at the right hand of the Father so that you would promise that we will share in that glory that we will reign with him. Father, such grace that we do not deserve. I pray, Father, that as we reflect on these words, you would help us to understand how lavish your grace has been towards us. And may we, as we understand more fully the height and depth and breadth and length of your infinite love, may it grip our hearts so that we would gratefully live for your pleasure, for your glory. This we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.